This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. a lot of jokes out there about unethical lawyers, like there are two ex-cons and one of them studies to be a lawyer and one decides to go straight. Or how can you tell when a lawyer is lying? His lips are moving. You could say that lawyers are one of the few groups that you can make fun of without people being offended. Even lawyers, or maybe especially lawyers, seem to find lawyer jokes riotously funny. I mention all of this because today on Fordham Conversations, we're talking about something that might sound like the beginning of a lawyer joke, but isn't one. Legal ethics. My guest on the show is an expert on legal ethics, and in particular on the ethical guidelines that prosecutors should follow. Later on the show, we'll look at life after prosecution. But first, Bruce Green is a former federal prosecutor, and he is a professor of law and the director of the Lewis Stein Center for Law and Ethics at Fordham. Green spends his workday thinking about some of the thornier ethical issues involved in prosecution. I spoke to him at his office at Fordham Law School about evidence sharing, plea bargains, and the pitfalls of the legal aid system. Bruce Green, thanks so much for talking to me. My pleasure. Now, let me open with a very broad question. In terms of criminal law and ethics, how is how's the system working right now? What are the big problems? Well, I think uh, on the whole, in the United States, the the process works fairly well, but we're a society that doesn't appreciate uh, error very much. So to the extent that uh, innocent people are sometimes convicted or to the extent that people innocent or guilty don't receive a fair trial, we consider that problematic even if the error rate is pretty low. So I think um, there's always room for improvement and also cases of error I think, uh, really detract from public confidence in how the system, the criminal justice system, is working. And of course, now we've seen many cases where there's been both uh, substantive and procedural error. The cases where uh, we know that innocent people were convicted because DNA testing shows that conclusively. And so we know that on that that level, the system is imperfect. And so uh, there are quite visible instances of the system not working well. There's no way to know, of course, how representative they are, whether they're just the tip of the iceberg or they represent many of the cases that don't work well. But certainly, there are problems. There are many cases, perhaps more than 90% of the criminal cases in the country, where the defendants can't afford a lawyer and the lawyers are appointed to represent them. And the defense attorneys who are appointed have often very limited resources in many systems where you have uh, legal aid lawyers who have to represent many or most of the defendants in the jurisdiction. There are huge caseloads. In some jurisdictions, the appointed lawyers are appointed from the private bar, but they're uh, paid very little. Sometimes they're paid a flat fee, which creates a disincentive to put in a lot of hours, and it's often a low flat fee. And, And they may have very limited amount of money to hire investigators as well. So in those kinds of cases, obviously, there's a premium on receiving from the prosecution the kinds of evidence that the defense needs in order to do an effective job. But if they don't receive that evidence, it's very unlikely that they're going to discover that fact because they have such limited investigative resources themselves. I would add that it's not only in cases where uh, indigent criminal defendants have appointed counsel because many of those who can afford lawyers can barely afford lawyers and the lawyers, uh, in fact, may have very little more resources or maybe even less resources uh, than the appointed lawyers. Obviously, that varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. In federal cases, as a general matter, the the appointed defense lawyers are, are certainly in New York 
quite good and have sufficient resources, but it really varies a lot. In many of the states, the quality of the defense lawyer, in large part because they lack adequate resources, is really not terribly great. Say I'm a prosecutor, maybe not in New York City, but someplace, and I am assigned a case where the defendant may or may not be guilty. What do I need to be thinking about ethically? What are my obligations and what might prevent me from wanting to meet them? Well, uh, if you're getting the case from the beginning, you or someone in the office, but but perhaps you have to make a judgment about whether this defendant is guilty or not. In general, prosecutors shouldn't bring cases against people who, who they think are innocent. Now, interestingly enough, there's some disagreement or lack of clarity about the question, how, how certain do you have to be of the defendant's guilt before you bring a case against that defendant? So some people might say, well, uh, as long as I have a triable case, a case I can win, and a case that can be indicted because there's probable cause to believe the defendant committed the crime, that's good enough for me. I don't want to usurp the jury's judgment. I'll bring the case and let the jury decide. Now, um, that probable cause is a very, very low threshold. Maybe it means um, it's likely or more likely than not that the defendant is guilty. And the idea of bringing a case against people who are just simply likely guilty, uh, many people think is, is a very bad one, that the prosecutors have a duty basically as gatekeepers to make their own judgment about whether the defendant is guilty or not and, and keep bad cases out. Because remember, we're a society that... that requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a very, very high standard to meet. And the reason why we have such a high standard is because we are horrified by the idea of convicting innocent people, taking away people's liberty, or even simply stigmatizing them and having them bear all the consequences of a conviction uh, is a very, very bad thing for people who don't deserve it. Uh, and and prosecutors, many think, have a an obligation to be convinced themselves beyond a reasonable doubt or to a very high standard before they bring a case. And so that's one judgment that has to be made. Another judgment that has to be made is even assuming uh, I, the prosecutor, am convinced that the defendant is guilty, is this a case that ought to be brought? A lot of things can be brought as civil cases rather than criminal cases. A lot of uh, defendants, not murderers, obviously, but people who engaged in minor crime, um, maybe shouldn't be prosecuted at all simply as a matter of discretion. Once you make the judgment to, to bring a case, there's obviously a lot of work to do in uh, preparing the case and preparing witnesses and deciding what witnesses to call. And that also calls for kinds of ju- different kinds of judgments by the prosecutors. Suppose, for example, that uh, you know uh, your witness is not telling the truth. Well, in that case, it's easy because the rules of ethics for all lawyers say that you can't present uh, witnesses who you know are lying. And th- that would be the rule for, for civil lit- litigators as well as you know prosecutors and criminal defense lawyers in general. But um, what if you just are not sure? What if you suspect they may not be telling the truth? Or what if you're just not convinced that they are truthful? Do you as a prosecutor have a higher obligation to make sure that if you're going to get a conviction, the process is fair and you're not using um, questionable evidence in order to secure a conviction. Here again, there's a question on which uh, even in 2009, after you know we've, our system's been going on for quite a while, there's room for disagreement. Some prosecutors would say, I'm, I'm just like other lawyers. Uh, if I don't know this person is lying, 
I'm going to put the witness on the stand, and it's the job of the criminal defense lawyer through skillful cross-examination to expose the false testimony if, it's, in fact, it's false. Other prosecutors, and I would certainly put myself in this camp, feel that they should not present uh, evidence unless they believe it's true because part of their obligation is not only to avoid convicting innocent people, but also to make sure that everybody gets a fair process. And if you're not satisfied about the truth of your witness's testimony, you're not providing a fair process. And then, of course, as you go on, there are lots of other judgments you make. Um, Is this evidence that's in my file something that has to be turned over or not turned over? Different prosecutors around the country treat this in different ways. Some have an open file system where they basically say to the defense, you can look at all the documents in my file about this case, and and that avoids any any kinds of judgments that might be, in hindsight, erroneous about whether something has to be turned over or not. Other prosecutors uh, just try to make individual judgments about all the information they have. Finally, when you get to trial, there's all kinds of judgments you make, too, about your, your theory of the case and how you uh, present the evidence and cross-examine and so forth. It seems like there are a lot of pressures to okay, it seems like this based on my watching the news and Law and & Order, but I'm just going to bring that out in the open, um, that there are a lot of pressures to prosecute a lot of cases and to have a high level of success in the prosecutions that you do. Is that really true? And if so, how does that affect the way the legal system is working in terms of criminal cases? I think, you know, it, it varies around the country. You have federal prosecutors who are appointed and can only bring a very, very small number of the cases that might be brought federally. There's a large degree to which federal crime and state crimes overlap, and federal prosecutors leave it largely to the state and local prosecutors to bring cases. And they're, so they're selective, and they're, they're, um, the kinds of pressure they may be under may vary from administration to administration because every attorney general makes their own judgments about where they ought to put resources. Should we prosecute uh, voting rights cases? That was uh, the last administration's view. Or immigration cases? That was the last administration's view. Do we want to put our focus on government corruption cases or do we want to declare war on drugs and and so forth? So um, to a large degree, on one hand, as an appointed lawyer, uh, you don't have to really answer to an electorate. On the other hand, you might answer to um, the attorney general. And and certainly simply as a matter of professionalism, you want to be successful in your office by your lights, however you view um, the relative priorities. Now, in most states, I think there are only two exceptions. Prosecutors are elected. And so you're under a different set of pressures because you may be in a jurisdiction where you're going to have a contested election either in the primary or in the general election. And you want to make sure that you win, presumably. And so you have one eye on what you think is the right thing to do as a matter of of doing justice and another eye, perhaps, on um, what would sell, certainly in high-profile cases where the news media is following them, whether you're in a small town or, or, or a city, you want these cases to end well. Presumably, if you bring them, you think the defendant's guilty and you want to secure a conviction. And, you know, in, in, in uh, you know, other cases, you, you may be having some one eye on your conviction rate. I, it, it varies, though. I mean, in, in New York City, the, the district attorneys are all very well regarded and probably um, won't have uh, significant challenges. And I think that at, at this moment in New York City's history, uh, the prosecutors are largely doing what they think is right and not in any way pandering to the electorate. But you can imagine in other jurisdictions where it's a more competitive election and the prosecutors may be less popular, they're under a lot of um, pressure to to do something 
that, that they think will sell well. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking today on the show about the ethics of prosecuting crime. My guest is legal ethicist and Fordham law professor Bruce Green. A little later on the show, we'll hear from one Chicago teen about what life is like after prosecution. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Bruce Green. One of the big things that you look at that we've mentioned before is the idea of exculpatory evidence. What if, as a prosecutor, I know or become aware that my the person that I'm prosecuting is not guilty of the crime? If you know the person's actually not guilty, then your job is to dismiss the charges and even if you've secured a conviction, uh, the obligation would be to go back and do what you can to rectify the mistake. And in some jurisdictions like New York, courts have authority to set aside convictions when, when in hindsight it, it turns out that the defendant w- was innocent. And so in New York, you could do things like disclose to the defense attorney or to the defendant or to the court that uh, the defendant was wrongly convicted, that the defendant is innocent, and the court would have power to do something about that. It's trickier in other jurisdictions because in in, in some jurisdictions, there's no remedy other than the gubernatorial pardon power. And in in federal cases, sometimes after the process is played out, unless there's procedural error, there may be no remedy other than a presidential pardon. And these are, you know, governors and, and presidents don't issue their pardons very often and don't like to do it. And so it may be that the prosecutor has some limitations on their ability to correct the error uh, after the fact. But certainly before the fact, it's easy if you know the defendant's guilty. You just drop the charges. We hear an enormous amount about DNA evidence. Um, Yes. Now, I am uh, anything but an expert on the science of DNA evidence. But one of the interesting things about it is... Uh, one of the things it, DNA evidence has shown is um, that a lot of people are convicted who are innocent. You know, it, people were, who were convicted prior to the advent of DNA evidence are, are exonerated because of the evidence. Now, now of course, eventually uh, it'll be fewer and fewer people because now DNA evidence is used at the outset of a case rather than o- only years later. But what it tells us is that our process is um, fallible and While I think many people knew the process was fallible anyway, I think for skeptics it may be um, somewhat persuasive. And then what that should lead us to ask is, why is the system fallible? Now, in a lot of um, enterprises, when you make mistakes, uh, you go back and ask why. So, for example, in the medical field, uh, when, uh, you know, people die because of medical error or, or people are harmed because of medical error, the hospital, the doctors will go back and they'll say, you know, why did we commit this error and, and what can you do? What kind of systems can you put in place to avoid this? I think that people who work in the criminal area uh, are asking these questions. I'm not sure to what extent prosecutors are doing that. I think not to a terribly great extent. I think that's one of the things that, that prosecutors ought to do more, which is um, rather than defending their errors, which they sometimes do, and also rather than exi- resisting DNA testing, which happens to some extent, including in, in a case that's now uh, before the Supreme Court, I think prosecutors should ask, how did we make this mistake? We know, for example, we've known for years, social scientists have told us about the fallibility of eyewitness testimony. Juries tend to put a considerable weight 
on the eyewitness testimony, and particularly of, of victims. And prosecutors for years have been saying to juries, even if this victim only got a, a short look you know, at, at the perpetrator, the, you know, the, the image was engraved on their memories and they would never forget. And, and witnesses tell themselves they'll never forget. And yet we know in hindsight that, um, you know, people make a lot of mistakes when it comes to eyewitnesses. And, and prosecutors could ask, you know, to what extent are these mistakes that we could have corrected? Or what are the other things that lead to errors in, in the process? Now, some people might say, well, you know, nothing's perfect and you have to accept some risk of error. But it seems to me that, that you wouldn't say that if you were building um, an airplane or if you were uh, engaged in other kinds of enterprises where people's lives were at stake. And obviously in the criminal process, people's lives are at stake uh, as well. Okay. So I'm sitting in jail having been convicted of a crime. Why is it so hard if evidence emerges or if a witness comes forward saying that they're not really sure anymore about their testimony? Why is it so hard for me to be released from jail? And in some cases, virtually impossible. Well, our system is constructed so that defendants, before they're convicted, uh, get a lot of procedural benefits, at least in theory, which include, as we talked about, the disclosure of evidence in the prosecutor's possession that that would be helpful to the defense, the right to examine and cross-examine witnesses and call witnesses, and the right to counsel, which without which none of these other rights would be of much value because you couldn't do anything with them, and a right to a jury, and, and the burden of proof is put on the prosecutor beyond a reasonable doubt, and so forth. But afterwards, we don't like do-overs, particularly if, if you can't show that, that there was a serious procedural mistake, because first of all, we want to believe the process works. We want finality. We don't want to put witnesses through their paces again and use the uh, considerable resources if you had to try cases over and over and over again every time somebody came up with a, uh, a new piece of evidence that might have been helpful. Also, there's a concern about defendants gaming the system. If you could um, come back and say, look, this witness recanted, they, they now say they made a mistake, uh, you know, that would uh, give an incentive to defendants or, or those who are, uh, care about them to try to pressure witnesses to recant. So there are a fair number of reasons, I, I think, why the system's constructed to make it pretty difficult once you're convicted to exonerate yourself. We have been talking about cases where the adversarial system does get put into place, but it is very frequent that people who are arrested on criminal charges end up taking plea bargains. Now, I've seen it on Law & Order, but tell me how that system actually works and what its sort of pros and cons are in terms of, I guess, innocent people going to jail. Well, the, 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 the plea bargaining system works differently in different jurisdictions. You know, in general, the theory is that <clears throat> the defendant is charged with a certain crime or series of crimes. So, for example, you might be charged with, you know, five different instances of drug dealing, and you're allowed to plead to maybe one of them, the idea being that uh, there's a benefit to the defendant in terms of, of leniency. And there's a benefit to the prosecution because it doesn't have to expend resources in trying every case. I don't think that prosecutors now or courthouses or judges would be equipped to try every case. They don't have enough resources. And, and so uh, a guilty plea um, is a benefit to both sides. And, and, and historically, it's also been thought that you know, the person who pleads guilty deserves some leniency because to some degree, they're accepting their guilt, and that may make them a better candidate for rehabilitation, although I think that theory probably doesn't hold true very much. And in fact, 
uh, and this gets the the problem of, of innocence. If you're um, charged with a very serious crime and face very significant jail time, and you could reduce that by pleading guilty, you have essentially uh, an economic, rational choice to make. What is the likelihood you'd be convicted at the trial, whether you're guilty or innocent? And how do you uh, take that into account in relationship to what the sure but more lenient result if you plead guilty? And so it's assumed, and criminal defense lawyers would probably confirm this, that um, some number of people who insist on their innocence plead guilty simply to avoid the more harsh consequences. And that's at, at the high level. At the low level, it's probably even a greater extent to which uh, innocent people plead guilty. So take, for example, you know, misdemeanor court in New York, and you face the alternative of uh, pleading guilty the day you're brought in and being guaranteed uh, no jail time, and all you get is a criminal conviction. And the alternative might be you have to come back time after time, or even worse, uh, you're held uh, in jail because you can't make bail uh, for a significant period of time while you're awaiting trial. I think uh, many a rational person would say, I'll plead guilty to something I didn't do if they could walk free that day uh, rather than having to have a trial, which they may not even win because, as we know, these trials are fallible. And and so uh, nobody can say how many innocent people plead guilty, but I think it's generally assumed by knowledgeable folks who work in the criminal justice system that some of the guilty pleas are entered by innocent defendants. Why is this so complicated? Well, it's complicated because there are a lot of conflicting interests involved. Um, You know, you want to give uh, defendants a fair trial, but you also want to have a process that enables you to uh, punish guilty people. And so uh, you, you are an adversary on one hand, but you have a duty to do justice as a prosecutor on the other hand. Um, you know, you could, we could spend another long time talking about the complexities for criminal defense lawyers who uh, are subject to regulation, of course, and uh, can't present false evidence and can't suborn perjury, but are also uh, zealous advocates representing people whose life and liberty are at stake, and they, they're under uh, conflicting pressures as well. You know, people write about, uh, you know, what do you do when your criminal defendant client uh, is uh, going to take the stand and lie or has taken the stand and, and lied? And uh, the legal profession and, and uh, even academics have been debating about how you deal with this for, you know, about a century. And the answers change as people's um, view about uh, how to resolve the policy issues changes over time. Do you say that uh, defense lawyers have to maintain their clients' confidences because if they were to disclose the courts that their clients have lied, uh, the clients will no longer trust them and they won't be in a position to give an effective defense to their clients? Or do you say that uh, lying in judicial proceedings so taints the integrity of the judicial proceeding that um, you have to disclose that as, as a defense lawyer rather than leaving it to the jury to try to you know, figure out who's telling the truth. These are really hard questions. And, and so I guess the answer is um, because it's hard. I will close with a two-part question. Um, both in the real world <clears throat> and in the world in which you have an awesome power to change things, what would you like to see change? How would you like things to improve to get closer to the way you'd like to see them? Um, I, I think that um, I, I am more process-oriented than 
someone who will sit down and say, I have the answers to how people ought to behave. And what I wish is that um, prosecutors and defense lawyers would be more open about how they do things and deliberate with each other about uh, what is the best way, you know, ethically and professionally to go about dealing with some dilemmas so that um, there's greater understanding within the legal profession that comes about through open uh, discourse. To a large degree, in, in my experience, uh, both sides are insular. The, the prosecutors feel attacked. Or they're often accused of misconduct. Um, they don't trust the defense lawyers, and they think that they're wearing the white hats and they're in a better position to resolve uh, how best to behave. And you develop a somewhat insular culture. Defense lawyers uh, are mistrustful to an equal degree of, of prosecutors. Uh, they think prosecutors don't appreciate uh, the complexities of their job, the importance of providing zealous representation to their clients, etc. Um, you know, bar associations exist to some degree as a forum for lawyers with different views to sit down and try to reach common ground after engaging in discussion. Uh, I don't think I know the answers to these these questions. I, I think when I listen to lawyers on both sides, the issues seem very complex. But I think that there ought to be uh, an effort to come up with the best answers. How convinced do you have to be as a prosecutor that the defendant is guilty before you bring um, charges? Uh, what should you do um, when you have evidence that may be uh, disclosable? Should you move to an open file system? Should you be more liberal? Uh, should you take notes when you're talking to your witnesses so that you have a record of what was said and what have, might have to be turned over? I, I think, um, you know, what's the best result for criminal defense attorneys? You know, does the, should the constitutional obligation to give an effective defense trump the duty that you might otherwise have as a lawyer to disclose when your client is lying? These are really tough questions. I don't have answers, but but I do think that uh, prosecutors and defense lawyers ought to talk to each other more, along with judges and academics, and try to do a better job of coming up with the right answers. Well, Bruce Green is a former federal prosecutor, and he is a professor of law and the director of the Lewis Stein Center for Law and Ethics at Fordham. Bruce, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. I enjoyed it. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarchy. On today's show, a streetwise history of New York City. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, when we talk about prosecution, it's easy to forget what goes on after prosecution. But for people like Jennifer Martinez of Chicago, that's not the case. We'll close the show today with this piece from Cure Youth Radio, where Martinez reflects on visiting her brother in prison. I'm slanted against the waiting room wall, scraping off the molded yellow paint with my black polished nail. I'm thinking about you, and I still can't believe I'm here to see you, my hero, the one who once said, I will always be here to beat up anyone who hurts you or ever makes you cry. And little homie... That's That's a a promise. I stare at the floor. From behind that cold plastic window, a guard hollers, Martinez! Everyone in the room looks up, but not judging, because they are here for the same reason. I drag inside the room lined with stools, and there you are, slouched on your stool, looking up at me like I once gazed up at you. I see you wearing those beige pants with a plain white t-shirt under your beige top with DOC written on the left. 
just above your shared packet. I parked myself in that icy cold stool. I see you behind that thick, scratched, bulletproof glass. I can't hug you, hit you for being so stupid, or give you a I miss you kiss. You leaned forward towards the little holes poked through the glass so that we could talk. And you began telling me you loved me and missed me and that you were worried about me. I ask, if you really love me, then why are you in here? Don't you remember you said you'll beat up anyone who hurts me? So, are you gonna kick your own butt? I didn't think so. You broke your promise because you're the one who hurts me. You have made me cry. Then you say, never get involved with bad people. Do everything I didn't. And most, most important, important, listen, listen to, to moms. Because most, most of the, of the time, time, she's, she's right. There we are, the closest we will ever be. I see my tough brother trying to reach your little sister by planting your hand on that inch thick glass. And the guard hollers, Martinez! Time's up. That piece from Jennifer Martinez and Curie Youth Radio in Chicago. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at fordhamconversations at wfuv.org. We would, of course, and as always, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at wfuv.org. It's in our audio archive as well, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.